Chapter Two of the Hampstead Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Hampstead Mystery by John R. Watson and Arthur G. Rees. Chapter Two. Six thirty edition High Court Judge murdered. It was not quite five p.m., but the enterprising section of the London evening newspapers had their six thirty editions on sale in the streets. To such a pitch had the policy of giving the public what it once been elevated that the halfpenny newspapers were able to give the people of London the news each afternoon, a full ninety minutes before the edition was supposed to have left the press. The time of the edition was boldly printed in the top right-hand corner of each paper as a guarantee of enterprise, if not of good faith. On practical enterprise of this kind does journalism forge ahead. Some people who have been bred up in a conservative atmosphere sneer at such journalistic enterprise. They affect to regard as unreliable the up-to-date news contained in newspapers which are unable to tell the truth about the hands of the clock. From the cries of the newsboys, and from the announcements of the newspaper bills which they displayed, it was assumed by those with a greedy appetite for sensations that a judge of the High Court had been murdered on the bench. Such an appetite easily swallowed the difficulty created by the fact that the law courts had been closed for the long vacation. In imagination they saw a dramatic scene in court. The disappointed, demented, desperate litigant suddenly drawing a revolver, and with unerring aim shooting the judge through the brain before the deadly weapon could be wrenched from his hands. But though the sensation created by the murder of a judge of the High Court was destined to grow and to be fed by unexpected developments, the changing faces of which monopolized public attention throughout England on successive occasions, there was little in the evening papers to satisfy the appetite for sensation. In journalistic vernacular, they were late in getting on to it and therefore their reference to the crime occupied only a few lines in the stop-press news beneath some late horse-racing results. The evening courier, which was first in the streets with the news, made its announcement of the crime in the following brief paragraph. The dead body of Sir Horace Fewbanks, the distinguished High Court judge, was found by the police at his home, Riverbrook, in Tanton Gardens, Hampstead, today. Deceased had been shot through the heart. The police have no doubt that he was murdered. But the morning papers of the following day did full justice to the sensation. It was the month of August when Parliament is up, the law courts closed for the long vacation, and when everybody who is anybody is out of London for the summer holidays. News was scarce, and the papers read with one another in making the utmost of the murder of a high court judge. Each of the morning papers sent out a man to Hampstead soon after the news of the crime reached their offices in the afternoon, and some of the more enterprising sent two or three men. 
Scotland Yard and Riversbrook were visited by a succession of pressmen, representing the London dailies, the provincial press, and the news agencies. The two points on which the newspaper accounts of the tragedy laid stress were the mysterious letter which had been sent to Scotland Yard stating that Sir Horace Fewbanks had been murdered, and the mystery surrounding the sudden return of Sir Horace from Scotland to his townhouse. On the first point there was room for much varied speculation. Why was information about the murder sent to Scotland Yard, and why was it sent in a disguised way? If the person who had sent this letter had no connection with the crime and was anxious to help the police, why had he not gone to Scotland Yard personally and told the detectives all he knew about the tragedy? If, on the other hand, he was implicated in the crime, why had he informed the police at all? It would have been to his interest, as an accomplice, even if he had been an unwilling accomplice, to leave the crime undiscovered as long as possible, so that he and those with whom he had been associated might make their escape to another country. But he had sent his letter to Scotland Yard within a few hours of the perpetration of the crime, and had not given the actual murderer time to get out of England. Was he not afraid of the vengeance the actual murderer would endeavour to exact for this disclosure which would enable the police to take measures to prevent his escape? No light was thrown on the cause of the murdered man's sudden return from the grouse shooting in Scotland. The newspaper accounts, though they differed greatly in their statements, surmises, and suggestions concerning the tragedy, agreed on the point that Sir Horace had been a keen sportsman and was a very fine shot. In years past he had made a practice of spending the early part of the long vacation in Scotland, going there for the opening of the grouse season on the 12th of August. This year he had been one of a party of five who had rented Greylaith Hall in the Western Highlands, and after five days' shooting he had announced that he had to go to London on urgent business, but would return in the course of a week or less. It was suggested in some of the newspapers' accounts that an explanation of the cause of his return might throw some light on the murder. Inquiries were being made at Crayleith Hall to ascertain the reason for his journey to London, or whether any telegram had been received by him previous to his departure. The fact that one of the windows on the ground floor of Riversbrook had been found open was regarded as evidence that the murderer had broken into the house. Imprints of footsteps had been found in the ground outside the window, and the police had taken several casts of these but whether the man who had broken into the house with the intention of committing burglary or murder was a matter on which speculation differed. If the murderer was a criminal who had broken into the house with the intention of committing a burglary, there could be no connection between the return of Sir Horace Fewbanks from Scotland and his murder. The burglary had probably been arranged in the belief that the house was empty. Sir Horace having sent the servants away to his country house in Delmer a week before. But if the murderer was a burglar, he had stolen nothing and had not even collected any articles for removal. 
The only thing that was known to be missing was the dead man's pocketbook, but there was nothing to prove that the murderer had stolen it. It was quite possible that it had been lost or mislaid by Sir Horace. It was even possible that it had been stolen from him in the train during the journey from Scotland. It might be that while prowling through the rooms after breaking into the house, and before he had collected any goods for removal, the burglar had come unexpectedly on Sir Horace, and after shooting him had fled from the house. Only as a last resort to prevent capture did burglars commit murder. Had Sir Horace been shot while attempting to seize the intruder? The position in which the body was found did not support that theory. Two shots had been fired, the first of which had missed its victim and entered the wall of the library. Evidently the murdered man had been hit by the second while attempting to leave the room. It was ingeniously suggested by the daily record that the murderer was a criminal who knew Sir Horace, and was known to him as a man who had been before him at the Old Bailey. This would account for Sir Horace being ruthlessly shot down without having made any attempt to seize the intruder. The burglar would have felt on seeing Sir Horace in the room that he was identified, and the only way of escaping ultimate arrest by the police was to kill the man who could put the police on his track. Mr. Justice Fewbanks had had the reputation of being a somewhat severe judge, and it was possible that some of the criminals who had been sentenced by him at Old Bailey entertained a grudge against him. The question of when the murder was committed was regarded as important. Dr. Slingsby of the Home Office, who had examined the body shortly after it was discovered by the police, was of opinion that death had taken place at least twelve hours before, and probably longer than that. His opinion on this point lent support to the theory that the murder had been committed before midnight on Wednesday. It was the daily record that seized on the mystery contained in the facts that the body, when discovered, was fully clothed and that the electric lights were not turned on. If the murder was committed late at night, how came it that there were no lights in the empty house when the police discovered the body? Had the murderer, after shooting his victim, turned out the lights so that on the following day no suspicion would be created, as would be the case if anyone saw lights burning in the house in the daytime? If he had done so, he was a cool hand, but if the burglar was such a cool hand as to stop to turn out the lights after the murder, why did he not also stop to collect some valuables? Was he afraid that in attempting to get rid of them to a fence or drop, he would practically reveal himself as the murderer and so place himself in danger in case the police offered a reward for the apprehension of the author of the crime? If Sir Horace had gone to bed before the murderer entered the house, it would have been natural to expect no lights turned on. But he had returned unexpectedly. There were no servants in the house, and there was no bed ready for him. In any case, if he intended stopping in the empty house instead of going to a hotel, he would have been wearing a sleeping suit when his body was discovered, or at most he would be only partially dressed if he had got up on hearing somebody moving about the house. But the body was fully dressed, even to collar and tie. 
It was absurd to suppose that the victim had been sitting in the darkness when the murderer appeared. Another difficult problem Scotland Yard had to face was the discovery of the person who had sent them the news of the murder. How had Scotland Yard's anonymous correspondent learnt about the murder? And what were his motives in informing the police in the way he had done? Was he connected with the crime? Had the murderer a companion with him when he broke into Riversbrook for the purpose of burglary? That seemed to be the most probable explanation. The second man had been horrified at the murder and desired to disassociate himself from it so that he might escape the gallows. The only alternative was to suppose that the murderer had confessed his crime to someone and that his confidant had lost no time in informing the police of the tragedy. The newspaper accounts of the case threw some light on the private and domestic affairs of the victim. He was a widower with a grown-up daughter, his wife, a daughter of the late Sir James Goldsworthy, who changed his ancient family patronymic from Granville to Goldsworthy on inheriting the great fortune of an American kinsman, had died eight years before. Sir Horace's Hampstead household consisted of a housekeeper, butler, chauffeur, cook, housemaid, kitchenmaid, and gardener. With the exception of the butler, the servants had been sent the previous week to Sir Horace's country house in Delmer, Sussex. It appeared that Miss Fewbanks spent most of her time at the country house and came up to London but rarely. She was at Delmer when the murder was committed and had been under the impression that her father was in Scotland. According to a report received from the police at Delmer, the first intimation that Miss Fewbanks had received of the tragic death of her father came from them. Naturally, she was prostrated with grief at the tragedy. The butler, who had been left behind in charge of Riversbrook, was a man named Hill, but he was not in the house on the night of the tragedy. He was a married man, and his wife and child lived in Camden Town, where Mrs. Hill kept a confectionery shop. Hill's master had given him permission to live at home for three weeks while he was in Scotland. The house in Tanton Gardens had been locked up, and most of the valuables had been sent to the bank for safekeeping. But there were enough portable articles of value in the house to make a good haul for any burglar. Hill had instructions to visit the house three times a week for the purpose of seeing that everything was safe and in order. He had inspected the place on Wednesday morning, and everything was as it had been left when his master went to Scotland. Sir Horace Fewbanks had returned to London on Wednesday evening, reaching St. Pancras by the 6.30 train. Hill was unaware that his master was returning, and the first he learned of the murder was the brief announcement in the evening papers on Thursday. End of chapter 2 of The Hampstead Mystery by John R. Watson and Arthur G. Rees Read by Lars Rolander